Should be good to go. All right. Welcome to episode three. We have all the stars have aligned and we have all four podcasters here in the building. Yay. So, all hey, four of us. A little bit of excitement in the room today. <laughs> um, anything interesting happened in the past week for anyone? Who wants good, to take the reins on this? <laughs> yeah. You went on personal level or? Yeah, or professional, anything. whatever, okay. whatever has kind of hit you. Hopefully anything? not physically. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I guess on the personal level, um, I've been trying to get knee surgery for the last year and a half at least. Um, I tore my ACL at uh, Sky Zone. <laughs> I, I never knew it was from Sky Zone. Yeah, yeah, it was originally from Sky Zone. I I don't normally tell people that because it's kind of embarrassing because it's, it was. I mean, it's it's a combination of things that kind of put it over the edge. Um, but Sky Zone was like the final blow to it. Like a two hundred and seventy pound man jumping on a trampoline, trying to go as high as I can go, and I landed in the middle of two of them, and my knee popped out twice because I, I hit the trampoline, and then I bounced back up. My knee was already out, and then I fell back on it a second time. So just confirming the damage was done. Um, I wasn't able to walk for about three weeks after that. Um, so saw a doctor. Doctor said, oh, it's just a loose uh, patella. You're, you should be fine. And um, I didn't, I was like, okay, fine. It's gone out about eight times since. And I got a, eventually my boss, uh, Good Life, uh, he made me go to the Pan Am Clinic to get a second opinion and they're like, yeah, your patella is really loose. Uh, it might be a torn MCL. Um, we're going to get an MRI. Check it out. Took six months to go get the MRI. Two months to get the results. Came back. They're like, yeah, actually, it's a torn, your torn meniscus, torn ACL. Um, and so we booked a date with a surgeon. I met with them on two, last Tuesday. And uh, May 31st is my surgery. So I'll go for surgery. I'll be off for about two months from work. Um, and then it'll be a lengthy recovery, but I'm just excited to finally get it done. Yeah, kind of get back to some sense of normalcy, especially if it's right. been popping out that often. Well, uh, and I love frequently. to play. I love to play sports. I love to play basketball, football, and I can't really do those things right now. I we I played dodgeball, but even then, I'm I'm very careful on it for the most part. And usually, it's gone out a couple of times even playing dodgeball, just as like my body is like reminding me that like no, you can't do this. My issue with dodgeball is always stretching enough before and then thinking right. I'm too athletic during the game. So I'll, I'll take a <laughs> jump and try and jump over like as high as I can. And all of a sudden I feel a twinge in my hamstring or something. But no major dodgeball injuries or at, at, or at Sky Zone for me. Yeah, just, just a lot of slam dunks at Sky Zone. Yeah, I, I, love, well, I love dodgeball at Sky Zone. Um, and then the slam dunk was cool too. Actually, I hurt myself doing that as well. I, I'm a big <laughs> a guy. A little bit injury prone. Well... On a trampoline, you wouldn't think I get that much height, but like think like 270 pounds of force, like coming down on a trampoline, it I tend to get quite a bit of height, and so I misjudged it, and like my neck kind of went into the rim, so I didn't realize it was going to go that high. <laughs> All right, we got to keep Jace away from Sky Zone. Is what we learned. See, I knew I have, this. This would lead. I have to at least injure myself once a year. It's I think it's a contract. I went, uh, I went on a pretty big string of whenever my family went to a different place. Whenever we were on vacation, I would end up getting hurt. So there was one time, it was after watching Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, when I was about 12 years old, <laughs> and we were in the mountains. I think we were in Fernie, B.C., doing a snowboard ski trip, and I decided to play fight with my brother, and I rolled into the corner of the wall and just had, like, blood spewing everywhere and <laughs> had to go to the hospital for a couple stitches. But there were a couple other times like that, too, so... I think I got all my injuries out when I was a kid, so now hopefully 
I mean, I made it through the football career without any major MCL, ACL, or knee injuries. So yeah, that's that's amazing because it's such a common thing to have, especially in the football world. Well, on running backs, when you have everybody trying to run after you and tackle you low and flip oh, you over or yeah. take you out. So um, kind of happy with that. My shoulder's a little bit... Uh, I, I always wondered why my dad, when I was young, wasn't able to play catch for more than about 15 minutes without having to go back inside. And I now understand it because throwing a ball, I can I can make it, I can still play a touch football game at quarterback and, and do it, but it's it's a little bit, I can feel kind of, I don't know, not... It just gets sore pretty easily and pretty often. So I think one day I'll probably need some surgery or something. Well, yeah, life. especially if you're playing well, playing things like dodgeball too. Your that repetitive movement, right, in the shoulder, yeah. the, the buildup of cartilage. When when we decide to play two hour games, <laughs> it's a, it's probably the worst thing I could do for my shoulder is is throw a ball as hard as humanly possible. Yeah. You know, well, a hundred or two hundred times. In we a, originally a know each other through dodgeball, right? Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, honestly, I never really played dodgeball on that level before. So I remember the first time, I think two weeks, my arm was so sore. Like I could barely move my shoulder and I thought like I injured it, but it's just over time I got better and better. But yeah, you condition things, right? You kind of, and you figure out, I know now I'll put spin on the ball because it's a different trajectory. It's not just throwing straight at something. So yeah, there's, I mean, there's always ways to work around kind of the things that are in the way or some soreness or Absolutely, or whatever, but yeah, it's fine in the way. Any dodgeball stories or getting hurt at Sky Zone <laughs> stories from the rest? No, no, no. All right, we'll go from there. <laughs> uh, so I did want to talk a little bit about actually kind of a cool thing that I did. I went to the MABA competition yesterday. So that's the the Amateur Bodybuilding Association, and this was to to become eligible for what is it provincials. So this was a regional. Um, competition. I I found it interesting. It was nice to see people. I think I can always respect people that try and take something basically to their physical limit. So I I understand that through sport is just you want to get to the peak of your game, whatever that is. So in football, it's a full off season of training and lifting heavy weights and, and doing sprint training. And, you know, you almost have to be a bodybuilder, but then have that cardio side and and be able to strap on pads and go hit somebody you know, every single play of the game. Yeah. Um, so I, I definitely know the, the mindset of that. But it's interesting to have something that's completely based on, I wouldn't even say completely based on aesthetics after yesterday. It seems that you have a lot of people with huge amounts of support just from their peer group and their family and their friends. And you also have people with the posing that you could tell the people that really enjoyed what they were doing, kind of that time on stage they, they perfected their routine of different poses, and it was really inspiring. Some of them, you just gravitated towards them because they, it seemed that they were in their element, and you could, you could kind of tell that. And then, but then you have the other side of things where it's, you could tell for some people it's, it's kind of, it just might not stem from the most healthy place. It, it might be they're uncomfortable with something, the way they look, and they just want to get bigger and bigger, and you kind of see that within bodybuilding. Yeah is sometimes trying to fill a void. Yeah, I, I think it becomes an obsession, right? Sometimes not always for the healthier, although I would argue that um, to be good at something, you definitely have to be obsessed in some way or another. Well, we talked about this yes. last time a little <laughs> bit about specialization and yes. or you know, having that plan A. 
And I can, I can respect that because you only accomplish great things if you're, um, if you're in tune with what you want to accomplish, right? If, if you go, I'm going to be the world's best bodybuilder, well, you're going to have to take the steps to do that. And just yeah. like anything, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you're going to have to spend the time learning about, well, you're going to have to come up with an idea. You're going to have to pursue it. You're going to have to learn all the different aspects of it. And even to, to translate this into maybe what through the podcasting thing, it's like learning all these little intricacies and, and learning even skills that, you know, previously un, undetermined, like, or just things that I hadn't worked on in the past. And now it's translating that into, okay, find a way to make this work. And, and what are the small steps we can take towards being better, you know, personally and, and as a group as well? Absolutely. Um, right. I, I mean, with anything, there's, yeah, you have to be obsessed to some level, but there's also, we talked about this, there is such thing as too far, right? Yeah. As too much. And um, you're, breaking limits has its consequences. But, um, Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was uh, volunteering. If anybody has done some volunteering in the past, what sort of volunteering did they do? And did they feel they made a difference within the community or wherever they were doing it? Colin or Ben? My volunteering's, um, well, up to this point, it's mainly been um, dealing with shelter animals. Um, that's one of the passions of mine. I love helping animals. Um, it, uh, you know, it really gives me that, that, that good feeling that, you know, um, but I have been, I have also been looking to do, uh, I know Riley and I were actually talking about this uh, a bit. Uh, we we're talking about doing the, uh, March for mental health, uh, volunteering there. And uh, you were also mentioning, uh, uh, another one. I don't really remember the, yeah. So I was going to save this a little bit, but we're, we're in talks to help out with the Andrew Dunn Walk, which is a walk for mental health. And uh, it will be in, I believe it's May, early May. And we're going to reach out and look for some volunteers for that. So it'll be one of the things that we want to accomplish with being the changes, actually being out there in the community, helping people and, and volunteering our time to really make an effect on our community, make a positive effect. So... Uh, if you're interested in that, definitely reach out. There is an email attached to uh, definitely our Instagram, probably our Facebook as well. Um, we said it at the end of last episode. Maybe one more time, b.the.change.yps at gmail.com. Lots of dots in there. Simple. Period, stop. We got to figure Straight out to the way. point. Straight to the ha, Straight to the point. Nice dad joke, Jace. Yeah, I'm good at those. So... That's something we're hoping to do, but with the animals, um, what what drives you to do that? Like, what's I've the... always well, I grew up on a farm. I've always been around animals. I've always I've always loved helping animals, and it's interesting because you think of farming, you don't necessarily think of that animal care, like loving animals, and but you definitely do have those relationships in a different way than I think, especially if you grow up in the city, you have the relationship with food, especially proteins and meat, where you're, you just arrive at, you know, whatever the local shop is and say, you know, I want my steak and my chicken and whatever it is. And so you don't even, you don't even see the animal. There's just no, there's no natural element to that. It's just, okay, I need food. I'm going to go buy it. So I, it, 
you must have an interesting relationship with animals through that. Yeah. Any any notes or anything like I'm trying to think of maybe is there a story in particular that led you to wanting to volunteer with animals? Well, no, just other than I, you know, I've I've been around them my whole life and like I would like to make it a career at some point and I kind of feel that volunteering at like a shelter is kind of that that first step to getting in the door, you know, when, you know, to, yeah, to, to like working at a vet office or, or getting into veterinarian medicine or something like that would be, would, would definitely be what I'm aiming at. And I believe that that's a stepping stone in that direction. I always respect people who have that love for animals and that passion for helping I kind of know within my own life that people are the thing that, or the thing, people are who I want to help change and help make that difference with. But I always respect the environmentalists and, and even people that, that have that passion for helping animals because you need all sorts of people in the world and you need people that, that want to help make those changes. Um, and that's a great way of doing it. I know in my own life I've had great pets and, and it's kind of that unconditional love that it just helps you be satisfied. And knowing something, you have a, an animal that relies on you for sustenance, but also you have that mutual love and care of each other. Uh, I can't wait to get a cat because I know I'm, I don't necessarily have the time to spend training and keeping up with a dog, but uh, I just find I've lived with cats before and dogs actually, but it's just that, you know, it's not a ton of upkeep, but you know they're there and you know that you have that, that, love to go home to it's always yeah. nice to have some uh you know a pet greet you at the door and just be able to share in that experience so i'm excited for that stuff. yeah i don't know if i could do the whole like i admire that you can work with animals i feel like i get too attached um especially if it were dogs i love dogs um and i don't have one but if i had the time and i was at home enough i definitely would get one but um yeah working with animals that's that's incredible um, I, my, I've never worked with animals, um, in, in that way. However, I did do a lot of, um, volunteer work with ALS at a younger age. I talked about this a little bit in the last podcast. My dad passed away from ALS. Um, and we were talking about Stephen Hawking there because he also had ALS. Uh, so my sister and I actually, we started out when we first found out he had ALS, we would stand by the roadside and hold up signs just saying donate for ALS um, eventually got the traction from news, like local media. Um, and the and, ice bucket challenge. And the ice bucket challenge, yeah. <laughs> well, that came a lot later. This was back in 1997, 96. So this, we were, I was, would have been around eight years old at the time. Um, and yeah, local news got traction of it and it kind of blew up from there. And then the ALS Society got wind of it and asked us to help out with the events and that. And then the ALS walk came out of it. And we helped out with like the first time of that. And there was the ALS garage sale. And we went from taking dimes and nickels and quarters on the roadside to uh, full-scale charity events and uh, local hero awards. We were nominated about, I think, twice. Uh, we won a couple of them. The Premier Award, I believe we won once. Um, and then we won the uh, McDonald's Millennium Award, which sent uh, 2,000 kids from around the world to Disney World for a week. So wow. we won a trip to Disney World in the year 2000, um, which was pretty incredible. And we got like VIP access to everything. We had like a, our own guide that showed us around Disney World. And basically, we, like 
backdoor access everywhere to Disney World. So it was a pretty incredible time. Um, and in the end, we ended up, uh, by the time my sister and I finished, uh, just because we got busy with school and life, uh, eventually it dissipated. Um, but the ALS walk is still going. And actually, I think June 15th or June 18th, I can't remember, is the walk this year. Um, so hopefully we can do something around that too. I know I'm, it'll be a little more difficult for me because I'll be just coming out of surgery. But uh, if I can help out in any, in any way, I know I will. Um, but yeah, in the, by the end, when my sister and I stopped volunteering, um, we kind of looked back at how much we raised over the years. And it was, I want to say somewhere between fifteen dollars and $20,000 for ALS. And, and looking back on that, it's it, pretty incredible. And it, it was a good feeling that we were doing something to help. And that all went towards research towards for ALS as well. So it was, it was a good feeling. And to know that we came from basically standing on the roadside for weeks on end. And at the end of it, we got like 20 or $30 out of it to being able to win these awards and get these huge donations from like uh, Royal Bank or $5,000. And eventually just the accumulation of, of being able to raise that much money um, and that much awareness for ALS was, it, it, it was a good feeling. Yeah. And it's, I find it's always finding the cause that speaks to you and helping out as much as you can. I know it's, it's that same thing where it's, there's so many worthy causes where it's actually difficult to figure out where should I put my time and, and you know, who needs the help. But the, the real answer is there's all sorts of, people that need help. So find the thing that speaks to you and find well, a way to get back. That's super important. Like I, some people just love volunteering for volunteering and that's fantastic. And, but if it's something personal to you, like ALS or whether it's animals, then it's, uh, you get more fulfillment out of it, I think. So I think there's, there's that yeah. part of it that, um, that just resonates with you and you get that, that feel good feeling. And it's not, I don't know, it's not a guilty pleasure, right? It's like you're helping someone through it. Or helping some uh, an animal, and hopefully the future, you know, in the in the case of ALS, hopefully we can find a cure and find what causes right. it, and and find you know prevention and or treatments that that help. And and you see how far we've come in 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 cancer treatments. You see how far we've come in in AIDS research. Yeah, and it's you know, and, and even you look at the past, there were plagues, there were things that took out whole millions of of people. Uh, and very quickly, and 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 some of the advancements within medicine and research, even within the past hundred years, fifty years, it seems that we're really zoning in on on living healthy lives and helping people live to their fullest for longer as well. So yeah. it's it's it, I don't know if there's ever been a better time medically to be alive, and you know, and you even think of, I think it was even back in the 1600s, so pre-industrial revolution that. The mortality, infant mortality rates were 33%. So one yeah. out of three infants born into the world would not make it to adulthood or, or I think even past the early stages of life. So It's a good time to be alive. Yeah. No, <laughs> um, it definitely is. It definitely is, yeah. You look back on almost any point in history and, and compared to now, and it's, yeah, just amazing how far we've come Um Back in probably, what, the 1600s, you were lucky to live to 30, 40 years old. Yeah. It was considered a privilege, right? Whereas now it's expected, right? What's life expectancy now in the high 70s? I believe it's even into the 80s. Isn't it 80s now? It's even higher than it's ever been in history. 
That's you know, if you're Korean or Japanese and you're a woman, it's above 90. Wow. So, That's insane. That's yeah. incredible. And they even have uh, expectations that within the next 70 years, we might be able to cure death, which is a scary thought in itself. Yeah. But it's, it's cause to be optimistic that at least we're moving towards healthier for longer. You, you even look at end-of-life health where you have physical ailments or you might have Alzheimer's. That's kind of been something prevalent in, in my family. Um, and you, it's, it's tough because it's, you want people to live healthy and full lives. And it, even it's, it's that, you know, you want it to be the person that you know. And it's tough when you start to see people lose that at the end of life. So that's kind of becoming a new, a new area of research. When people aren't living till 80, you don't necessarily have some of these issues. But at the same time, it's, it's living for longer. And, and so it's uncharted territory. And yeah. it's finding the answers and some of the solutions for, for those diseases in old age as well. Uh, maybe on a little bit of a different note, in my own life, uh, I played football through uh, high school, then even into junior and university. Now I, I help as much as I can. I actually just finished off helping a program coaching. Uh, I've coached teams in the past, but I find it's a little bit difficult to to be there for a full season. I have done it in the past. I did it as part of my field work going through school. I helped manage a program, uh, the program I played at high school football with, and so planned a lot of events, helped with some of the paperwork, and coached running backs with the team as well. So kind of flash forward, uh, I still help with a lot of the football programming. There was just a high school development camp run by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers at the uh, U of W, and uh, it's a lot of high school players, mostly in inner city programming, but free to anybody within either high school or the community league to come and, and work on their skills. And it was Saturday nights and Tuesday, I believe Tuesday nights as well. And uh, so helped out with that. But it's great to coach people who want to be coached. They're there in the off season wanting to get better. And just realizing that you can have an effect on people's lives through sport is, yeah. is really a cool thing. And I would work them hard and make sure they're running and exhausted after every drill. But it's, you know, when they still keep coming back week after week and, and the ones that want to get better are there, it's, it's, it's really rewarding to just be on the other side of my playing career, but now give back to the next generation of football players. Because I know in my life, it's been something that, that really pushed me to want to, it pushed me to work hard, want to be better, learn that cooperation skill. Like we all know the, the benefits that sports have. And, and so it's nice to just see, kind of experience it through the next generation as well. They're going through the, the hard work and wanting to get better in the off seasons of training and, and these high school development camps. And then it, they go into the season and they can be that much better and, and strive to be successful within sport, whatever that means to them. So that's been, that's been one of the, the volunteering outputs that I've done. At what point in your life did you decide that kind of, taking the knowledge and experience you have and transferring it to and being able to help others with that, like what point in your life did that happen? Like what caused that to happen? It's funny. I think it's always been something that I wanted to accomplish is help others. But you kind of, I think one of the issues that I always struggled with until maybe even, it's still something I struggle with, but that self-doubt, I think, creeps in where you go, I don't know if I can help. I don't know if I have the proper knowledge. I don't know. And until you start doing something, 
And even with the discussion group, uh, the Be the Change discussion group that we do, it was I had no clue what to expect until actually doing it. But now it's been such a rewarding experience. It's nice to just continue on with that. So I'll, I'll say that, especially within sport, it was I wanted to pursue. I, I didn't have goals necessarily saying I want to be in the CFL or the NFL and, and have a 10-year career and make it to the Hall of Fame. I kind of, and part of that I felt was me being realistic. And maybe I should have had more unrealistic goals and I could have made it. Looking at it now, I kind of go, I'm happy that I had the mentality that I did. And it was, I want to pursue sport to the best of my abilities. So I wanted to make it to my best, whatever that meant. And so that meant, and pursuing it as far as I could. Mm-hmm. And, and that was my goal kind of intrinsically. I, I wasn't good at writing down goals when I was younger either. But that was, and it pushed me. So grade 11 was actually one of the big transitions. I was, I, I think I've told this story a little bit, but I always felt a little bit behind the other people around me. I was a little bit shorter, a little bit slower, a little bit more out of shape. Mm-hmm. And so grade 11, I was on the cusp. I played a lot of special teams and even played some fullback. So I was on the field, but I just didn't feel I was making a big enough difference. And then that whole off season, I worked with trainers um, through a, a local gym. And it was this big transition. To, I got into crazy good shape, cardiovascular strength, everything, and came back the next year and played offense, defense, special teams, and we ended up winning a championship at the end of the year. So wow. it, really, it really paid off. So then flash forward, I played junior. I got injured a couple of years. I, went to, I was a walk-on with the Bisons and ended up making the team. And funny enough, the three guys that were ahead of me in that position are now in the CFL. So it's, it's interesting to watch those guys play. And I'm really proud because I knew they were good, but at that point it's, you know that they're that good. Are they all CFL players? And to see them all succeeding now. Is there is, some level, on some level, do you regret at, at, or not continuing to pursue that? So here's, what, here's what I'll say. So uh, I played the two years of Bisons. <laughs> the second year I went in and I felt so close. I felt all I needed was an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it didn't come. And actually I went into the preseason game and the starter at that time got hurt. And, and so there were two guys in front of me. And I had the fourth quarter to go into that game because we, we all split quarters. And typically your starters go in in the first quarter and then you, you trickle down and then you have some of the backups go on later in the game. And actually, we only had maybe two drives in the third quarter. So they let the third string running back take some of the fourth quarter. He got the first drive in the fourth quarter. So here I am and warming up again on the sidelines because it's the fourth quarter and I haven't really been in the game or done much. And so I, I get called in and we, I think we go two and out on the first drive. So I get back out there, we get the ball back around eight minutes left. And then I get the ball six times on that drive, run for 55 yards. And, and then I believe that was actually maybe even further in the game. We might've had one more drive where I had a, couple of carries too but on the last drive I had six carries 55 yards and we're down to about the five yard line we have the lead and the quarterback fumbles the snap and then we end up downing the ball but I went I, I came out of that game as the leading rusher on the team nice uh and and everybody the next week told me that I'd be traveling and that I'd be playing in BC and it didn't happen 
And I went, what more could I have done with the time given to me? And I really went through a tough time the next couple of weeks because that opportunity didn't present itself. And so that season, I didn't really get my opportunity. And then I, that's when I decided I had one more year of eligibility in junior, played that. I know we're kind of going on a tangent from this volunteering, but I think it, it, it definitely plays into it. And so, um, yeah, I played my last year of junior and I traveled, I played and I was on a bunch of special teams. I got to start at running back a couple of games and, and had fun playing football again, which was just a nice culmination of all those years of hard work and going through injuries and not feeling like I got an opportunity and made some great plays. Didn't feel, I, I felt I could have done better that season, but it kind of, it already seemed to be transitioning. I kind of took a little step back to enjoy it. And then that's when I decided I had one more year of schooling. If I worked really hard at it, mm -hmm. I had my field work portion and I still had about five courses to take and I was working full time through that as well. So it was a chaotic year and I'd never want to repeat that, but I made it through <laughs> and it was just natural. So the field work portion, I ended up working with my high school and it just seemed natural Thanks. to be, okay, I'm not, I'm not playing football anymore. What's the next step? And they say those who can't play coach. <laughs> so, but in a way it's, you have that expertise and, and you want to help people with that. And it was, that was a rewarding experience because I got to spend a lot of time involved in the program that really helped shape me initially in those stages. And then to move forward, I still try and help as much as I can. It's kind of been learning my professional career and, and doing things. But even within that, I've, I volunteered, especially when I worked for the professional sports organization. I did working in a lot of those programs that were helping youth and helping through volunteering. Even I would volunteer some of the time that I had, which wasn't much, but to, to some youth and, and high school programs just to, because I knew that I had, I, I could help them with the, the knowledge that I had and maybe break things down. And I'm still young enough to run around and show kids exactly what the drills look like. And it, and so I respect the coaches that are still doing this at 40, 50, but you kind of have something to show and to give. And yeah. I think humans are really creatures of mimicry. So yeah. it's when you can actually see somebody do it, you go, okay, oh, that's how that works and, and kind of break it down. Uh, so I find that's really rewarding, but it was definitely that, that journey that I had. And it's, you see the highs and the lows, but to see what I learned about myself through that, I want to give other people that experience at least yeah, just, sure. just to know what they're made of and what they're capable of. So that was what sport did for me. And that's why volunteering even to this day is so important in my life. It's awesome. I, I think um, you speak to, I think everyone in that regard, it comes to a point in your life, whether it's now or late, whether you're 40, where you start to give back, right. And help others with the experience you have. And I, I never, I personally never thought of myself ever getting to that point. Um, growing up on some level, I was very nihilistic and not very hopeful for society or for the human race. Um, now I would say I'm more um, optimistically nihilistic. <laughs> um, and I see the value in others and, and to think of where I was and where I am now as a personal trainer and helping others um, in, the, in the fitness world, I, it, it's, I like it. I like being able to help people and to pass that knowledge on, especially through the mistakes I have made um, with like dislocated shoulder, torn ACL, like, and how to avoid 
having those kind of injuries and what to strengthen and just, yeah, teaching people. It's, it's, it's also an incredible feeling. Yeah. Just to share that knowledge. And, and that's how, that's how we build each other up is sharing that knowledge and sharing our, our talents. And so when you can do that with people, it's, it can make such a profound difference. I'm a strong believer also in just the little things making a big difference. Yeah. One of the things it's, it's an early memory. I, I remember being just, I would look up at everybody. So I was probably about six or seven years old, but it was walking in. I think it was Perkins because it was popular in the nineties, but it's not I, anymore. I, yeah, it's still popular. <laughs> so I was running to the door cause I'm excited to go get pancakes or whatever and have my chocolate milkshake. I was addicted to chocolate milkshakes when I was young. Nice. And, uh, but there were, I ran to the door, opened up and just kind of ran through and my mom stopped me and just said, well, there was an elderly couple walking towards the door, and she says, you hold doors for, especially people older, like, respect your elders, and also just do the nice thing and do the friendly thing, and because the little things matter. And so that's something I've kind of kept with me is just, I will almost do it. You know, you kind of see that there's the person that's a little bit too far away, but I'll go out of my way to hold the door for someone because you don't know what somebody's going through and that's why I try not to let the little things bother me either. When you, maybe somebody is a little bit stressed out or you can tell they're being a little bit short or maybe even irate, you, you don't know what somebody's experiences and what they're going through. Of course. So it, it's a really big thing. It, it's maybe that small act of kindness can make the world of difference because maybe that's the thing that changes their mindset for the day. Maybe that's the thing that gives them a little bit of hope yeah. that in humanity, as you might say, um, it's and, a, and then hopefully make that change. It's an interesting practice to start um, being conscious of your judgment because we all we judge each other, and they say within ten seconds of meeting someone, you've already made a, you've already decided whether you like them or not. Um, so it's always, and I've definitely done it too. I'm no different than anyone else. I've gone into situations where I thought someone was like very arrogant or egotistical in some way, and and just. The air about them turned me away from them. But then as I get to know them, maybe two months down the line, I'm like, oh, you're actually a really good person. I actually become very good friends with them, and they actually have a lot to offer. It's just that initial. And I always wonder, too, what people think of me upon initially uh, compared to if someone got to know me for a longer period of time. It's, it's interesting. So it's, it's always good to go into a situation consciously thinking about, like, okay, my judgment might be incorrect about this person. And there's probably more to this story. And, there, and not, not probably, there is more to this story. There, this way for a reason, right? Yeah. It's... Oh, uh, just on the side note, there were, that we talked about the animals, helping animals and uh, volunteering in animal shelters. <laughs> so I'm all for that. In fact, we have, uh, we have a dog and a cat at home. They're both rescued. So. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. yeah. And... That's awesome. uh, now they look fantastic, but you should have seen them when they were rescued. And uh, I'm a guy that always loved animals. We are, was not uh, like I've never been able to uh, like work or leave with farm animals, but we have all, we had always animals at home. So much so that we looked like a zoo. So we had turtles and chickens and ducks and I know cats. And uh, that makes you feel like, okay, these animals are uh, very much like humans. They have emotions. And they, uh, 
they understand what's going on. Yeah. More than more than you can ever imagine. So if to hurt an animal is a very inhumane way, and it's like you, they say if if someone hurts an animal, they're eight hundred times more uh, likely to hurt the human being. So if someone hurts an animal, they have to be on the watch list because they're gonna be. They're gonna be. Uh, chances are, they're gonna hurt uh, hurt a human being some some point some point in their life. They're gonna become serial killers. They're gonna become, uh, you know, whatever. Right. It's no different yeah. than abusing a child, right? You're... Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that said, and what you said about ALS, we also need uh, animal experimentation. That's true. Right. Uh, it's a very unfortunate thing that we have to do this. Yeah. Like, as someone who does this firsthand, I know that's. Uh, it's emotionally tough, even on researcher and on the animals, of course. Uh, so to whoever animal rescue volunteers out there, please don't break into the science labs and try to uh, rescue animals. If you want to do such thing, do it with cosmetic uh, products, yeah. uh, factories. That, that's, that's something we don't need. Yeah. If I want to use 10 or 12 animals, I have to go in front of the committee and justify using those animals. Why do you need two more animals? Yeah, but I don't think that's. And we just works on my. We work on mice and rats. I know that there's some researchers work on cats and dogs, which I'm never gonna be. I'm not gonna be able to do anything like that, even if I, my life depends on that, because they are like very, um, especially cats and dogs. They have been. It's like those uh, domestic cats and dogs are um, descendants of big cats and wolves, and they we are the ones that made them what they are now. So they are emotionally attached. They can read our faces. They can read our voices, voice tones. So it's very, um, I'm guessing, even if it's for the greater good, it should be, uh, it's not what we are doing now. We can't do any animal experimentation, right? On cats and dogs, in my opinion. So even on mice and rat, you have to be, uh, you have to justify it. But those cosmetic con- uh, companies or pharmaceutical companies, they do it on uh, much bigger animals. And chimpanzees or uh, mammals of monkeys or yeah. uh, capuchin monkeys. And uh, you might be surprised that what, what makes the, great, uh, the greatest ch- changes in science are the science that's done in universities and not in pharmaceutical companies. What pharmaceutical companies do is just buy a research off a, off a university and they expand it and, tr- and even they distort it and try to make money off it. Really. So yeah. So those, uh, if they do animal experimentation, mm-hmm. if you want to stop someone, try to stop them. And I, I hope someday they'll get to the point that we don't need animal experimentation. We are very close. We have right now, we grow t- uh, human tissues in the lab that very much like like human organs, like the yeah. uh, clone or the, uh, I know the brain cells. But we are far from having an intact human organ that we can actually, it doesn't have any, not soul, but it's not a human, it, not, it doesn't have a consciousness. So you can actually experiment on those cells, and okay, and these are my cells, so I'm going to give my cells, let's say I have cancer, I'm going to give my cells, and it's brain cancer, I'm going to give my cells, they're going to grow brain tissue, and they're going to find the treatment that's works for, that works for me. Right. And then you don't need any animal, animal experimentation anymore, because you, are, you can actually work on human tissue. But until we reach that point, we need that. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it's the um, unfortunate side of, part of it, but yeah, and you're, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's the 
it's the the cosmetic side of it. They don't need it, right? Yeah, you don't, you don't need it. You don't need to survive. You don't even need to look good. There are many ways to look good with natural products and everything. Well, yeah. hundred years ago, there were no cosmetic products the way we have now. Yeah, I feel like there are probably some people that would disagree with that sentiment. I don't, but yeah, um, you know, at, there are people that can't go without, say, cosmetics, right, in their day to day life. But it is not, it's not a necessity in life, whereas when we test on things like animals for diseases, it's to better our lives or to extend them and, and abolish said disease, right? So um, it's like a necessary evil, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I wonder how long it'll be before we start to go away from, from cosmetics, just in the way that we're evolving to being, especially in terms of, social equality and things like you just see um and then even beyond that when we're growing tissues it's kind of something i wanted to talk about as well uh just the the transhumanism i'm kind of thinking of uh what's it called what's the tv show on netflix oh carbon carbon yeah altered carbon carbon, yeah i i really enjoyed that show but again it was a i enjoyed how it was done but it also made me a little fearful for the future yeah because it pointed out, and I think very accurately, what a lot of the issues of the future will be. Uh, maybe a small back story of the show. They, ha- they basically captured your DNA in stacks, which plugged, plugged in, for lack of a better term, but where you could put them into different sleeves, which were essentially human bodies. And so if your stack Soulless was bodies, still, yeah. Would- soulless bodies, but that could be grown from your own tissues. So basically, if you can grow organs, you could start to grow skin. You could make it look like you, especially with the, the um, cosmetic procedures that we can do now. You could probably make a human that looks or make a human body that looks just like you. But then there's, you know, we talk about the soul and all sorts of different things. But the, then the stack would plug into new bodies. And so basically, this technology was mostly... You, you had the same hierarchies that you have now, but it's the rich are able to have, you know, even backups, their, their stack data and things. And so there were kind of these intricate uh, ways around the system. So you, you, if your stack was destroyed, then you would be biologically dead. Like there was no bringing you back still. Yeah. But there were a couple of different ways that these rich mega millionaire like i don't even know back up to the cloud right back up to the cloud (laughs) essentially which is what it was but it it was yeah it just seemed that even some of the social uh issues so there were and their technologies were that much further they had flying cars and everything was built up even higher yeah and you had trying to think of some of the other things but and then you had the traditionalists that say let's not have eternal life and then so you kind of had the religious connotations and so they were seen some of them as terrorists but it was just the complex social issues that that caused and that we're probably not going to we're not far off from having to face some of these things i look at stem cell research it was interesting listening to uh it was Joe Rogan had on uh, Mel Gibson mm. and, and a stem cell research doctor. And Mel Gibson's dad was in his 90s and got stem cells injected and was able to function better, which is a great thing. But again, it seems that while this technology is really only accessible, he had to go down to Panama or something 
and to get these treatments done because they're not there are certain stem cell treatments in the u.s that are legal and able to be done yeah but if you go to different countries you can get even more work done and you can get um because there's there's prenatal stem cells and some yeah. of them from the yeah, uh, very, umbilical cord yeah. as well it's kind of dangerous injecting uh stem cells for nine for a person it's 90s it should be fine because right. But it's for a younger person, it always brings the chance of cancer. So uh, I forgot the specific term for that type of cancer. So you inject their own cells, but they are stem cells. They, have the, they, have, they should have this ability to regenerate without any, because our cells regenerate for, let's say, uh, for a limited time. After that, they're going to start, uh, the DNA starts to decay in, in um, let's say, in not, I don't want to be very uh, specific. So DNA starts to decay. And the cells start to die, and the, all sorts of mutations happen. And usually, people—that's why when people reach after ninety or hundred, usually many of them die of cancer or mm-hmm. all sorts of these types, especially blood and and uh, gastrointestinal types. So, uh, but if you inject a, long, a, a young person with a stem cell, chances are the, uh, they're gonna get uh, cancer because of those stem cells, because they're gonna divide and acquire the whole body. And, the person so unless it's on this this it's the person is very old or the person is um, gonna die in an hour just in a hypothetical situation yeah. if it was going in an hour and the stem cell gonna increase the chances of life for a few years i don't think that's a good thing to do at least right now to me the the one sentiment that i had from that interview was a little bit of the the vampiric aspect of it too where it seems that take from the young to, to let the old live longer. And it just worries me in a, in a way. It's, it seems we need to keep ourselves in check. It's, it's strange that we have all these new advancements, and, and yet we don't know the repercussions of these advancements until they come along. And then even there's the, the introductory phase, and then you kind of have the, the stabilization. But it seems that we'll probably go too far before we rein it back. And, and that's just in a human sense, not even in technology. That's not in, but, and then we look at nature and, and the amount of species dying out and, and climate change, if you believe in it or not. But it, it seems inevitable now that we need to find solutions to a lot of our issues. And yet we're kind of, we're evolving in a lot of different ways at the same time. And it just seems, seems chaotic, really. Mm-hmm. And it, who knows exactly what's going to win out as being the predominant victor of of our resources and the technological and and even biological advancements so one of the things it's one of the things that i've grown to actually appreciate more is the human struggle the human experience but i would say the human struggle and the opportunity to achieve amazing things and even the fact that death allows for new life and so I think there's a beauty in being human, and I don't think I want to personally lose this experience. Well, let me ask. If you had the opportunity to live forever, no. would you? No. Instant no. Okay. Why? And it maybe depend, would depend on, on when you ask okay, me. Okay. Let me ask you this way. Okay. If you were, uh, you, there's no, af- I'm going to tell you, as a, there's no afterlife. With you leave forever. So here's, here's the thing. I don't necessarily believe in an afterlife. 
And so this has to get spiritual now. You you injected the spirituality aspect into it. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, I mean, do you necessarily believe in an afterlife? I mean, yeah, because if you if if for those who believe, it's very easy to die because they're gonna leave again. Yeah. So yeah. yeah so then essentially, if you believe in an afterlife, you're gonna live forever anyways, right? Yeah. So, or rebirth. Or, yeah. Reincarnation. Reincarnation. Yeah. It depends on on your religious and spiritual views. Uh, I've I've kind of let it be known that I believe in a Taoist philosophy and outlook on life. And really, to me, you think of the yin and yang symbol, but I also kind of draw it on a on a lifespan. There's kind of a, a peak to life, and then you start to decay to yeah. towards death. But then, to me, there's the opposite. There's the other side of the line, which just is not a physical existence. And I've become a little bit more of a believer in, in the way that you live your life. And, and it's not a heaven or hell thing. I, I almost think that there will be an experience. And this is very hypothetical. You can believe in that there's a heaven and a hell. You can believe that there's nothingness. You can believe that's fine. This is just maybe a personal view. But the way you live your life and the experiences that you have, I feel like they'll just be an opposite experience, you'll kind of get to see on the other side how those experiences went outward and and maybe the effects that you had. And so you'll kind of see the good that you put into the world or the evil that you put into the world and see how that stemmed outwards. Kind of, I have a tree analogy where it's just like almost the giving tree where it's just, you know, you, you put your energy out into the world and you nourish it. And then either you positively build things up and you think of maybe the others as small plants. And so if it's got the right nourishment, it's got water and it's got sunlight, it's going to grow and become a healthy tree. Mm-hmm. And I don't think humans are very different from that. So if you're bringing positive energy and positive outlook and trying to affect people in a great way, and I know we're not perfect. I think you're bound to make mistakes and you have to learn from those mistakes. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that you can do is not learn, to your, learn from your mistakes and keep repeating the same mistakes. Don't they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? Yeah. So all of this is to say, when you die, I believe that there's a, a, a kind of... People talk about the return to oneness and just nothingness, but I almost think that it's you, you'll live those experiences not as yourself, but you'll just kind of see it and you'll feel it in a, in a sense. And so you'll go through that experience until you just become again one with the universe, one with the, uh, I would almost talk it, about it like an energy. I think of different energies coming together. Mm-hmm. And I even think in a way that people talk about the Big Bang, but it's like somehow energies came together and kind of formed all this. And even looking at the universe, there's so much chaos, but then all of a sudden, sometimes the chaos creates beauty from it too. You have planets colliding, you have supernova stars, you have all sorts of different insane things happening in, a, in an infinite universe and a lot of it's chaotic but it's led to us being here and I think we're a reflection of that and so there's just a return to that oneness that energy and and so that's kind of what I believe to be the other side in a sense and I think that it's I want to do the most with my time here but I'm kind of I don't want to lose that process it's the ultimate unknown mm-hmm. right so I, I don't see that. Why would you want to live forever? I like that you brought up the whole oneness and thing. I was going to bring up uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, and I think he he put it in a very 
um, understanding way of where we come from and how our atoms come from the stars and that one day those atoms are going to return to those stars. So yeah. like, and I like that. That's, that's, that's nihilistic optimism at its finest right there. That one day we're not going to be here anymore. Right. And, and it, I find it com- comforting on my end, just knowing that when, and especially when in times I'm feeling really stressed and like feel like the weight of the world's on my shoulders kind of just look up the sky and be like, we're so tiny. We're so insignificant. And we're that pale blue dot in, uh, in the universe. And there's so much more out there that then this will pass. Like, it doesn't matter as much as I think it does. And so I find comfort in that. And actually bring, it helps me bring my stress levels down um, in a weird, very weird way. Like I said, nihilistically, optimistically nihilistic. <laughs> it's it's interesting because I watched the Cosmos series with Neil deGrasse Tyson and I loved it a lot of how it was done and all the information but I actually felt that it it made me feel so in, insignificant at times where I felt depressed like it it kind of brought me down a little bit but I also see the beauty like and I learned so much from it that I don't regret watching it or anything yeah. but and I, I think I think most people would uh be on your side and the the feeling of yeah, feeling insignificant makes me feel like I don't matter. I, well, I guess I'm. We weird. don't. That's that's, that's the, the point. Thing. But you you know that you don't. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah, you comprehend that you don't matter. You comprehend that you 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 have the ability to begin to understand how the universe works. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah. You don't. Your mind, if your body was, uh, if your body could function for uh, you know unlimited time, your mind, your mind was good enough to understand many yeah. things. And live forever and be beautiful. So that's the beauty of uh, being a human. Yeah. So for those people that like were that idea mm-hmm. of being so insignificant compared to everything else, the idea that you're going to be gone one day, stop, stop putting your sense of grand grandness or grandeur into that feeling or into that notion. Rather, put your problems into it because then you'll come out of it. I think feeling better because your problems really, at the end of the day, don't matter. Um, and it's, it's hard to wrap your head around, but it's, 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 to me, it's enlightening. Um, sorry, I kind of wanted to bring it back to as well. You were talking a bit about, um, just the, the whole living forever or would you, right. Um, and I think a lot of people would disagree and a lot of people would love to live forever because I think the argument for it (laughs) would be like, (laughs) well, then how much could I accomplish? How much could I learn? Right, all these experiences, but then you also lose the sense of urgency. I think the sense of more, t- uh, the sense of how mortal you are. Right, there's always tomorrow. Right, there's, I can always do this tomorrow. They they say part of our motivation is the fact that you're going to die. It's kind of yeah. It's maybe not something that you want to fixate on, but it is in the back of your mind somewhere that there is a finite end to this and I, to accomplish. And I would argue here. that we lose even sight of that, living to 70, 80, 100, 90, 100 years that we do lose sight that death is an actual thing that will even ne- that's inevitably going to take you at some point or another. I would say that's why the the life cycle has changed so much in the past even 40 years because well, you, you have delayed, the new 20, right? You, you essentially have delayed adulthood, you have delayed and and for better or for worse, but it's just happened this way because it, now just providing uh food and shelter for yourself is much more difficult in terms of relative income. 
that we've had uh, in our generation. It's much more difficult on a single income to afford a house or to afford an apartment and, and all these things. So it's it kind of seems necessary that we've that there is a delayed onset, but yeah. at the same time, it's it's that drive and finding those things are are delayed as well. Yeah. So this falls into the whole optimistically nihilistic thing again. But um, to those people that say that there's always tomorrow, and I say this to my clients when I sign them up for personal training, and they're like, I'll think about it, or I'll, I'm going to start next week, I'm going to start tomorrow. Stop living in the future um, because there's no guarantee of tomorrow. There's, the only thing you can guarantee is right now. You don't control the past. You don't control the future. You control right now and what happens right now. And if you want to make your life better tomorrow, it needs to start happening right now can't start happening tomorrow because you can't guarantee that to me. You can't guarantee it to yourself. So here's, I, I'm going to go back to the uh, original question. <laughs> so the, would you live forever? And what I would say about that is I'm, it's that human experience and, and being able to have children, watch them grow, watch them start new. You would, you would lose that experience because if there's 10 billion people living forever, whatever that number is yeah. there wouldn't be any um there would n- not be any purpose to having children it would just be a bunch of people living forever yeah so you run into a whole other slew of issues right uh, uh, a bunch and then you'd have people the same things would happen though you'd have people vying for power and ultimate power and how do i become more and it would just get so chaotic that i don't think that it's sustainable you just i think eventually somebody would press the button and then that's probably it but whereas in the current state, you, you kind of have to pass down, you have to pass down your experiences in different ways. And we have so many new ways of doing that. But it's, it's great. That's why I've, I've transitioned to wanting to learn about history, because there's this wide range of human experience that we even look down upon, where it's the, the Roman soldier in, in sword and spear warfare. Yeah. Whereas, and, and that was a reality for for some people's lives that they had to do those things to survive and now we we say you know and and there's still a lot of similarities if you're a soldier in current times but it's just i don't know what i'm getting at but these this human experience is just it's a beautiful thing and yes there are those horrific times and and historical periods and even those horrific things happening today but there's the chance for beauty and there's the chance to watch things grow and flourish and i don't want to lose that mm-hmm. and i think if you solve solve death for lack of a better uh term that you lose that experience that you lose that beauty of what it is to be human yeah and, and to to, yeah, to grow with the family and to and to learn as much as you can and make as much of an effect while you're here knowing that that's not guaranteed just, just like you say, there's, there's maybe not a tomorrow. So let's, let's start right now. Right. Let's start making a difference. And that's something I believe to my core. Yeah. I don't know. Sorry, go ahead. So, but I'm my, kind of, oh, sorry. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm kind of on both sides, I guess. I'm kind of with Riley on your points, but I'm also, I'm also one that I, I wouldn't mind to live forever. Yeah. To see, I, to see you know, to see how the world, I've thought about experience it. Experience like, more of the world and just, you know, to be able to just be here, see how the future goes and being able to be part of it. 
Yeah, it would. I mean, yeah, no, undoubtedly, it would be interesting. I always just ask myself whenever that question comes up, though. I'm like, I always think I'm like, oh, I can learn all these different languages. I can do all these different things. But then I'm like, would I, though? Would I bother? Yep. So the thing is, uh, you're done. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, you're, you're, what you're saying is true because we, we can't leave. But I, I'm, I'm, uh, I believe you are true because we can't leave. I'm, and I'm sure that we, we're not going to be able to cheat this or defeat this or whatever in, I don't know, even, in, even in forever. Yes. At least we are with, with the bodies we have now. Yeah. Okay, so, so we have to say, okay, we, we, we're not, we, we want to see the beauties. We're going to have a limited time. That's the beauty of it. And there was a, this movie, an old movie, that there was, a ro- uh, there was a robot that became everything in every sense became human. But when he asked, am I human now? They said, no, because you're not going to die. You're not human. But all this, so we don't, we haven't lived. There's no one that have lived forever. So we are not, we can't ask someone, okay. Like, that, yeah, that yeah, experience doesn't exist. How, how, yeah. how was it? Did you, did you, uh, do you did you it? spend <laughs> your time? Uh, do you regret it? Do you, do you feel like you want to kill yourself? Do you want to? Have the option to be to die. That's true. I, I could be maybe the, the most productive, most knowledgeable yeah, person so you, ever. You, you, you don't know. The, yeah. the, the best, the, uh, I think the, the, the least thing you can get out of it is you, can, you get to leave in different places for years. And I'm, I'm guessing the end point will be you, you will actually learn languages, right? At least, or yeah. you learn culture. You have, um, you, you, you're going to be a great sociologist. Well, yeah, and imagine. At that point, you'd have a Historian. hand in, in developing whatever yeah. current world you live in, right? There would be some hand in that. Yeah. So that that would be a very interesting. Who knows? Maybe that's, one day. That's if it's, a it's not going to happen. <laughs> so, well, and even if we find a way to cure death, we still have the the chaos of the universe that eventually will wipe us out. We, there's no such thing as infinite energy. Our sun's eventually going to die. I mean, at the end of the day, we're going to be left in a cold universe, right? Yeah, we're, we're, we're all yeah. engulfed before Sorry. that. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, not to make that all grim. <laughs> but it's, so, but we'll still be better to experience it, though. Yeah. You know what? You, you might find it grim. I find it extremely <laughs> exciting. And, and I, the universe is an amazing place and just the chaos of it. The, the fact that we can be struck by an asteroid tomorrow and just be plummeted into this, our, dust. Yeah, dust in a second so, is, ama- amazes me. Here's what I would say is, is this is the culmination of spirituality and science and trying to figure out what, trying to figure out what that means in our current societal and, and global climate is maybe one of the most important things. I think we've lost a sense. I mean, religion seems to be declining in traditional ways a lot. Well, um, so my mom actually goes to uh, a group at one of the churches, and I didn't know this, but apparently... Uh, they're struggling to stay open in Winnipeg. There are many churches that are on the verge of shutting down, and they don't know what's going to happen to those buildings. And there's all these old architectures, these old buildings. What happens to that when these churches are and no longer? Might get a little blowback, but I don't think Scientology is the answer either. <laughs> yeah, well, so they are. They're worse. But there, there's. I do think that there's a place. I mean, we look at the advancements from science, and yet spirituality in kind of a, a new sense seems to be more important than ever before. It seems that a lot of people lack purpose, whereas if you have 
you know, a deity or, or a figure to strive towards that is the, the penultimate perfect human or perfect ideal to work towards. I think that's important to have that as motivation. I'm not saying we should have traditional religion necessarily, but figuring out, you know, trying to figure out that ideal and trying to figure out what you should strive for in your own life is an important journey. And in my own life, it's been learning a lot of different morality, philosophy, religion, even seeing the the negative sides of all those things uh, and the positive, but kind of taking on those parts of it for yourself is really important. And even science, it's, it's, it kind of seems that there's negative science, positive science, like trying to do these things that are uplifting for humankind um, and help humankind. And then you have some focus on, I think, especially psychology, it's focus on the negative sides and kind of the outliers and things. So neuromarketing. So it's, it's, we have to build up again. And I think it's, yeah, it's just finding what is important for us as humans to, to be striving towards is maybe what, what we should be doing. Uh, one of the things, I think this plays into it a little bit in terms of the human experience, but maybe the toughest physical challenge or mental obstacle you've overcome or are maybe currently learning to overcome. So for me, well, this is very personal, so this might be one of the few that can know my wife and my therapist. I've struggled with major depression, anxiety. I'm, 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 and uh, I'm, I'm struggling with them right now. So, and uh, but as someone who knows that okay, there are these, these, and these medications, and the people take it and they're fine. So I, I never found them helpful. So unless you decide to help yourself before it gets too late, no one else gonna help. Yeah. Even all the medications that we have, they're, I, I think they're, uh, they're not going to work. Yeah, it's, they're helpful for some people, but I, I'm, I think the, the, the idea of giving one specific medication to a whole bunch of people of different age groups and races and, I don't know, upbringing and everything, and believing, okay, that this is going to solve a problem that's a spectrum, not one specific problem. Is uh, is absurd. It's it's something that's only a pharmaceutical companies. Want. I'm, I'm not gonna go ahead and be like those people. Look, okay, pharmaceutical companies are evil. They're gonna kill us. Uh, let's not vaccinate our children. No, I'm saying if don't medicate your children, don't medicate yourself unless it's absolutely necessary. Even if you have mental illness, talking or going to being with groups of people that are experiencing the same thing with, as you are. Or going to a therapist, just talk. I mean, a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. Yeah. So it's gonna help you much better. So if you decide to help yourself, imagine that, okay, what what, I, what I'm experiencing in mostly my mind, and believe that okay, there is a universe that's I'm insignificant. I'm just my problems are therefore insignificant compared to that big universe. Will help you much more than just taking a few bunch of blue and red pills. Yeah, no, that's I I agree with that sentiment as someone who uh is it has and is struggling with depression as well. Um especially like in light of cert, certain events that have happened over the past couple of years in my life. Um I've never medicated myself. I'm not saying that it's not an answer either. Like there are people uh, my sister used to be uh on lithium, she was bipolar. 
Um, I'm not saying I'm bipolar, but depression is something I always deal with. And it's always, I mean, especially living in Winnipeg too, seasonal affective disorder is something we yeah. all have to inevitably deal with. And I always try to ice, just think about it and what, what, how do I isolate that time? I try to think of like, why do I feel good in the summer compared to the winter? How can I isolate that feeling and what can I do in the winter that's going to make me, bring me closer and maybe not to the level as that I am, that I'm happy or less depressed in the summer or in the summer, but it's going to bring me closer to that point. And usually it ends up being me being more productive in my life in some sense and moving myself forward rather than wallowing in what I'm sad about. Right. But everyone's issues is, is going to be different in how they deal with it. Um, how I deal with mine is always just, I, I do something. So either I work or I move myself forward in some regard um, and try to better myself, um, or understand more about the world in some way or another so that it's not, and, and, and it comes back to just looking, looking up at the sky and I'm just kind of realizing, I'm like, oh yeah, you know what? I'm just this, I'm nothing. And to me, like, again, a lot of people would not find comfort in that, but I do so, like that. Like my problems aren't so, so much bigger than everyone else's, if that makes sense. For some reason, that, that made me think of, I wish I was wearing it today, but I usually wear dog tags, and one of them says, ex nihilo nihil fit, which means out of nothing, nothing comes. And to me, it's just a constant reminder to, to keep doing and, and to keep achieving, to keep striving. But really, it's one of my beliefs is that humans are creatures of habit and momentum. Yeah. So I think momentum's so important, but I, and it's, I believe you live long enough, you'll probably see all sorts of different areas on the spectrum of life, right? You're going you're gonna to go through those periods of high achievement, happiness, and, and fulfillment, or however you measure uh, success or happiness in your life. But then you'll probably hit those times where things go wrong. You lose a job, you lose a loved one, you lose uh, a relationship, maybe uh, a business that you... That's something in my own life that a business I, I planned and wanted to get started didn't work. And it, you, you literally feel that sense of loss. And that brings you down because you're, just, you're in that place where you just don't know the answer of what now, what next. And especially when it's the end of something, there's no bringing that back, which is a really hard thing to go through. And so that definitely has led to sadness or depressed times in my own life too mm -hmm. and and i feel like that's a bonding experience i think so the thing that i keep thinking is that there's a there's clinical there there is an area where likely there's pills are the answer and so i don't want to tell people that no i feel like people know themselves the best and you will know when that is the answer for you yeah but i do find that there's a tendency to over medicate we are in an over medicated society and i would say at epidemic levels you look at opioid crisis and you look at antidepressants it seems that our answer is just to shove a bunch of pills in front of people's faces get them to take it and it numbs them from the outside yeah. world until hopefully they can be strong enough on their own to get through but then you just have a dependency on that thing so yeah, it becomes this vicious cycle, right? It it becomes that vicious cycle. So, yeah, it, and 
And I, I know you kind of mentioned psychologists, and sometimes the worst issue with psychologists is that they've spent $100,000 going through schooling, and then they have drug companies that come to them and say, here is the answer to all evil and all negative feelings in life. And so when they're making money off of it, you, you often follow the money trail and you can kind of see the influences that those drug companies have on psychologists because yeah. not, that's going to make Not all of every- them, but yeah, there is, I'm True. sure, a large majority that fall under that influence. Yeah, that's why I said psychologists. They go and talk. Although I believe, uh, you, you, just to quote Sheldon on Big Bang Theory, Psychology is a doofus of science. <laughs> <laughs> Not, no offense to any psychologist either, but he, uh, sometimes it sounds like that because they, they believe everything is, okay, have you decided? They also have a, um, one medication for everything. So have you decided to do this and that? So by talking to them gives, gives you the ability to eliminate choices and options that won't work for you. So, it's, so what I'm saying is don't believe what they say and just go and blindly follow them and do whatever they say. It's not going to work. Talk to them, listen to them, because they, they know what's going on. Mm-hmm. They have spent, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of hours studying and of hundreds of thousands yeah. of monies. So they know what's going on. So they, got, they can help you with that, but it's going to be you finally who decides what to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's the important thing. And one of the biggest steps is always that it... That admission that something's wrong is sometimes, and that you want to get the situation better, whatever it is, seems to be the most important step that you can take. I've even seen people close to me where it's, it's that acknowledgement leads to some kind of development. Maybe it doesn't solve whatever issue it is, but you can start to build yourself back up and you can kind of see, well, what's the ideal? What am I hoping to get past or what am I hoping to achieve? Um, a little bit of a funny side note, it's, it's, funny that that sheldon would say something like they're psychologists or what did you say the doofus of science science. because you look at how much sheldon struggles with other human beings and so somebody who understands human beings yeah because in that episode they was they try a game psychology game they say if you go through these steps with another person you're going to fall in fall in love and they do that and it doesn't happen so okay once again it's a proof that psychology is a doofus doofus of science right and yeah, he is the uh, he is the uh, socially awkward. collection of uh, socially awkward person, a, a geek and nerd, and some someone uh, with he struggles with the, uh, I believe OCD, yeah, and anxiety. Yeah, I had another point. I wish I remembered what it was, but maybe to to transition a little bit to what do people need to live a happy and fulfilled life. I, I thought of it in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs as being kind of a good starting point maybe yeah. to, to discuss. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, also kind of what we talked about last time too, the, the whole balance of everything between relationship and um, the self de- personal development, like everything falls in line, right? There's a yin, yin and yang. You've got to have both sides of it in order to have that fulfilled life. I believe that there's truth in that. And that you can't just live one side of it. You can have, there's like, for example, the business guy who works every day and just goes to work but doesn't, has the failing relationship at home, right? That's not a fulfilling life. Maybe one part of it is the business is succeeding, but your relationship is failing. Um, 
so yeah, I don't know. There's there's many different sides of it, but let's bring up uh, Maslow's hierarchy here. So, and it's the the pyramid, <laughs> um, but physiological is at the bottom. So it seems that you need the things that sustain life. So sleep, food, um, what water, uh, and then the next level is safety. So in terms of personal safety, health, yeah. and essentially you think of war and things too. You, yeah. you, need, you need to be safe with the people you're around. The next stage is love and belonging. So having relationships, both familial friendships uh, yeah. and pair bonding or significant other is often part of that at a certain age as well. Uh, the next rung is esteem. I wish I remembered exactly. So being able to accomplish things, I would say, is part of that. But I th- Yeah, it falls into having goals and being able to achieve them on some level. Not necessarily, and we talked about this last time too, the, the materialistic, but beyond materials, right? Like personal goals of achievement and moving your life forward, not just getting that house or getting that car that you've always wanted. Yeah. And the final one being self-actualization. So reaching the pinnacle and realizing your best self, whatever that may be. So, yeah, what, what are society's role in developing happy and fulfilled people? Or what so should it be? I guess one is uh, to make an example, to start an example. Physiological need is what totalitarian governments try to control people with. Because on, as long as you are, uh, your mind is uh, set on trying to win bread for your family, you're not going to be able to think about anything else. You're not going to quit. You're not, you don't, you're not going to uh, need freedom. You're not going to need um, um, self-actualization, which is part of freedom. You're going to believe that you are an individual. You matter as an individual. You're not just some pawn that's expendable. So that's, uh, that's one of the examples that that pyramid works it seems that ruling by fear yeah. has a has a limit, has a very finite time because eventually you're going to have, and and then the issues within that is if it's a, well, a you, fearful ruler, then somebody just takes them out and takes their place. Yeah. That's kind of what. Well, and then has you lose like history. safety. You lose part of the, the yeah. Maslow's hierarchy. That's what like they that, do. They, yeah. they always say you have the enemy. Enemy is going to come and take us. They're going to come and I don't know, kill your children. They're going to come and take our country. But the fear, mm-hmm. physiological needs, like the, the uh, not having the, the that safety of I don't know, financial safety. It's hard it's to think of it now in, in terms of we know so much peace, so we almost have a an intrinsic sense of safety. Mm-hmm. We haven't. Uh, my life has never felt threatened. I would say ninety nine point nine percent of the time that that's true. I've. There's obviously, everybody lives in altercation or two where there's kind of, or just does, has been in situations where it's felt I think unsafe. It, but. Yeah, so I, I think it's just kind of taken a, a different turn or a different face instead of being af- afraid or being safe from enemies, from death and that. It's more of, well, am I safe from bullying? Am I safe from, in, the, in society, what are other people, how are other people no- notice me? People want to feel safe in a, a different way, I think. 
yeah, it seems that the social experience is expanding in, in so many different ways. It seems that when the issue is the enemy at our gates is coming to take our heads, it seems that it's uniting to, to fight off that force. Yeah. And I know that they talk about, uh, in terms of war, that you don't have a lot of those issues in those times of war. You have massive cooperation, communication to defeat the common enemy. And actually, it was something I saw in Trump's, I know this is going to sound really funny, <laughs> but in Trump's uh, debates and election platform that he kept making a con- common enemy. He went, China, Russia, they're all coming for us. Mexico's coming for our jobs. And then he said, I have the, the military ties and I have these generals support me. So he made himself this this like middle force of of being with the military people and having them on his side and also creating common enemies that were all coming to take whether it was jobs or resources or anything from the Americans. And I actually think in that sense he was really intelligent because people actually I think it's we still intrinsically fear those things where it's we don't want to lose what we have. Yeah, and so, so anybody that, who That's who, ruling through fear in some sense though. That's he's he's going back on those tactics, maybe not in the same uh brutal manner that it's been done in the past, but he is playing on people's fears. I would say that every president has done that to a certain point. I always think of George Bush in the threat level where it's okay, it's it's never gone into the green. It's always been up above. It's at amber or orange or whatever, and then all of a sudden it turns to red. And because that actually drives consumerism, people buy more. Y- yeah. y- you have to have your, your shelter packed with water and food to and non-perishable food to last you months because you don't know when a nuclear winter will come and all sorts of things. But it just, it did seem, there's, I know that there's a direct correlation between the two, the threat level and, and consumerism. And I think that there's still a large part of that today is the fear of of all these different things that could happen. That's why I almost think this North Korea thing is played up so that people are more fearful and and buy more again. Well, it, North Korea, uh, Russia now with the, the long-range missile threat that, that was all over the news, it's since died down. Now they're back to talking about porn stars. But <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's, a strange, it's a strange political landscape right now because it it seems that we do need more people that see all sides that that understand because it, it it seems that there's two sides there's the conservative views and then there's the liberal views and then there's everything in between but everybody has their party and they have their their belief system and maybe the people in the middle just fall to one side or the other because they somebody's in government long enough for for the people to to start to dislike whatever party is in power. So yeah. it's, it's, I don't know what the answer is, but it's definitely, obviously democracy is better than uh, uh, having a king <laughs> in certain ways, but at the same time, it seems that this system is, has its own flaws. Of course, and we are human after all. There's, every system is going to have its flaws. Um. Yeah, it, the big thing right now is, is consumerism, and, and it's crazy because fear plays up. Um, people want to buy more, right? And then commercial companies will create that, like, you need this, right? That The idea of, like, this, you, ha- you can't live without this. 
Um, so we are more materialistic than ever. Um, and Trump being a businessman, at the end of the day, he knows that how to make money and what to say to make money. But we look at the mass use of resources and our planet needs new solutions, not more of the same, more drilling. And we know how, how that particular thing, but then everything culminating, whether it's our, our vehicles and pollution, whether it's, um, farming even and and methane gases and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of upkeep with that so we look at all these issues culminating we need to start finding green solutions this might be the hippie mentality but we do need to find sustainable ways of of surviving as human beings and well you put us uh there was a study you put in the notes that where the scientists said about animals and plants and you're like everywhere is not doing well <laughs> This is maybe a perfect time to to bring it in then. So, uh, Asia could run out of fish within 30 years. UN (laughs) UN Biodiversity reports say, and it gets worse. Seth Bornstein, Associated Press. Uh, So, I'll read a little bit of it. We'll see if there's maybe a good stopping point, but... Earth is losing plants, animals, and clean water at a dramatic rate, according to four new United Nations scientific reports on biodiversity. Scientists meeting in Colombia issued four regional reports Friday on how well animal and plants are doing in the Americas, Europe, and Central Asia, Africa, and Asia Pacific. Their conclusion, nowhere is doing well. So, a little bit more, um, the last white rhino died in Africa, uh, a male white rhino, right? Ma- so male white rhino. Still, yeah. Severe declines in number of elephants, tigers, and pangolins. I wish I knew what a pangolin was. Not a penguin, a pangolin. But those are only the most visible and characteristic of species that are in trouble. Uh, what's happening is a side effect of the world getting wealthier and more crowded with people. Humans need more food, more clean water, more energy, and more land. And the way society has tried to achieve this has cut down on biodiversity, he said. One of the really good books I read on this also was The Sixth Extinction. So there's been mass extinctions from all sorts of different reasons. But yeah. the, the major difference between those and this one is this is human caused. This is due to industry and very much the last 150 years. And I would say this is going to be the biggest fight of the 21st century is actually finding a way we can live on this planet and, and survive in well, its current state. We, our, our population inevitably has to go down. Um, I believe, what are we at, 1.6 Earths or something like right now? Uh, the measurement, they use a measurement to the population in order to support the current population of Earth, we would need 1.6 Earths to support that population. I, I might be wrong on that number, but they said it's rapidly incre- uh, getting to two. And inevitably, it's gonna, we're going to hit a peak where it's going to force it either has to come down or it's going to be forced to come down because the Earth just can't support it. So the thing is, uh, humans cause mass extinction throughout history. And the thing is, when, so humans evolved. So these, are, these are all theories, and they can change it. Uh, they can change. Like the, the diet, the, the, not the way that it has become, not the way that it has turned out, the way... The timing and the specifics uh, of can change, but the, the whole story will pretty much remain the same, like evolution. So uh, they started in Africa and they spread out all to Asia and Europe. And the, the animals in Asia and Europe 
all new humans and so they kind of evolve together mm-hmm. but they they kind of uh if you if you remember we talked about the guns uh germs guns and still so in that book it argues okay humans went to all these new continents and though animals there never had never seen a human so humans look very docile and very friendly but to the point that they take out the gun or whatever no they didn't have guns the the sword or the the arrow uh, the uh or what's called the uh, well there were spears I yeah spears and everything and they so killed the spears but they caused mass ex- so that by the time that the first humans uh the sign of first human existence in north america in in australia and new zealand at the same time you see mass extinctions of uh All big animals. Well, buffalo was, in, the, yeah. in the prairies. Yeah. They, they, they all, they're all gone. Yeah. Well, the first extinction was the woolly mammoth. That was human-caused. So there had been mass extinctions before. I mean, there are no dinosaurs around today. Yeah. There was a mass extinction of dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, that one seems, no, I mean, human-caused. Yeah, but yeah. Human-caused. Yeah. Woolly mammoths were the first... Uh, But then there, there really weren't a lot, because it's large animals obviously yield the most amount of meat, and so we needed food to survive. And uh, we also uh, developed the sense of herding, having animals, so we could uh, have them grow them. Let grow them. So. Well, we were typically nomadic tribes yeah. until relatively recently in, in history. I can't remember how many thousands of years ago that the first agricultural-based farming societies were formed. Um, But through evolution, actually an interesting aspect of evolution were we lived, there were cave-dwelling Neanderthals and then there were Cro-Magnons who they expect were the ones who evolved towards being modern-day humans. Uh, Neanderthals were actually bigger physically and had bigger, I, I believe it was bigger brains, but their, the, the part of reasoning in their brain was smaller, so they were less intelligent, or at least their capability for intelligence was lower but they actually lived on the planet at the same time. So they don't know necessarily if there were any crossbreeding because there were cave dwellers and then there were more nomadic tribes with the Cro-Magnons. But uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think of where we came from. And then, so that's the out of Africa theory. I know that there are a couple others, but that seems to be the prevailing thought is that, that uh, ancient humans, for lack of a better term, Uh, or what evolves into modern-day Homo sapiens, came out of Africa, uh, started to walk on two feet, and then the evolution happened slowly. But then there were, then they went into Europe, over to Asia, and then there's a couple of theories of how they got to the Americas. Uh, there's some Native American um, myths, but Native yeah. American stories of how there was a crack in the ice from, a, I believe it was a crow In, in, and made an ice path very similar, actually, to Moses parting the Red Seas. Oh, cool. Uh, but, uh, yeah, pecking a hole in, in an ice shelf, and they were able to get to the Americas, which would, uh, which would make sense of, of kind of the evolution towards uh, northern Canada and then into, yeah. into South America even. Well, that's well. becoming more of an acceptable theory that the first North Americans came from that land bridge, right? Land bridge and also so they would be most closely biologically similar to uh, Asian populations as well. Right. So that's so you think of the spread and then you think of 
well, then there were animals and what's going to be most apt to hunt for, for human beings. And so the biggest animals that were the slowest in a lot of cases were obviously the best targets. So humankind's maybe best attribute as we became tribes and we were able to hunt together and maybe ancient communication wasn't as as sophisticated as we have now, but they were able to communicate enough to to join their forces and able to hunt similar animals. And that's probably why you had tribes of 50, 100 people. And, and so they would take care of each other, make sure that they had food. Uh, and, and yet that's what starts to lead to these extinctions. And then when there's the human population becomes high enough, that's when it seems natural that because we're creative people, we started agriculture and decided, well, you can stay in the same place, herd these animals together and kind of grow them and, and do it that way. But when you're in the wild and, and so you have tribes and all of a sudden there's tribes all around, you're, you're fighting over the same resources. So that's why a lot of the human battles happen. But so between the woolly mammoth, but then not a lot, the rates of extinction now, I believe, are 2,000% more than they were back then. I might be inventing 2,000. So wow. it might have been two or three species per year. And some of those might not even be human. It might just be the natural. Because even before extinctions happen, but it would just be maybe a new population of animal kind of eventually wins out. Because you think of even this evolution through humans, it wasn't just all of a sudden humans appeared. It kind of certain... Uh, well, and, and there's no Neanderthals. So it was kind of the ones that were most apt to survive and, and to be able to be creative or, or band together, then survive longer periods of time. And, mm-hmm. and so look at natural selection and, and all of Newton's research. But uh, yeah, certain species are going to win out. So maybe on the point of extinctions that we're at this place now where there's I believe thousands of species dying every year and going extinct. We lost, I believe the white rhinos are gone. So how do we preserve what we have and how do we slow these rates? And, and are there going to be animals left? Well, we have to, I know they're talking about cloning woolly mammoths back into existence. So will we get to a point in, in science and technology that we can start to bring some of these animals back if we have the, the have mandatory a, DNA? A real Jurassic Park? That would be awesome. Well, they did that in, in Futurama, and I actually think it's funny because I, I think that that's accurate. My, one of my pseudo-life goals, and this might sound kind of hilarious, but I want to eat a woolly mammoth in my lifetime because I think <laughs> if we're cloning them back into existence... Let's bring them back so we can kill wait, them again. <laughs> wait, though. So we used to eat them, so they obviously must have been pretty tasty. But if you we're never about, know. They, yeah. they were... Listen, Sorry, <laughs> you never know. They were living in, they were living on, they were living like in Siberia, and then yeah, there were nothing else to eat. Yeah, it's not yeah. like I don't think it was a, a delicacy thing. It was probably a survival thing. So if we're about ten years away from cloning them back into existence, then we'll breed some. There'll be enough, and then what's the point? Maybe thirty years down the road, we start farming them and eating them because they're a large animal and they would yield a lot of lot of meat for people to eat so instead of so, well, they, people of, are talking about cows i was gonna say sustainable because they produce less of methane and yeah. so the woolly yeah, mammoth so is so imagine the woolly mammoth 
Can you imagine driving down the highway and you see farms of woolly mammoths yeah. instead yeah. of cows? How awesome would that be? Though? I want to live Huge in that creatures. world. I want to live in that world. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of topics today. One of the other ones, uh, I kind of wanted to bring this in because it just hit me the other day that talking about art is not something that people do very much anymore. And I was looking for an inspirational picture and actually found one. I hope everybody's seen it. But I found one that it was just, it, it caught my eye. And I think art has that, that capability of doing that where it's just, you don't know why, but sometimes things speak to you. And so this specific picture, I don't want to give too much background because I almost just want to discuss what you see and then maybe what you take from it. So the quote I thought of as a picture is worth a thousand words. I would argue maybe even more depending on the picture. So discussing the image below, it's called Asking for Wisdom. And in 2012, inspirational art swept through the gallery as Ivan Guadarama's paintings took on a new twist with brighter colors and stronger details. And so the abstract styles were mostly English and Spanish. Uh, and there also was a little bit of a focus on the brighter side of life, which I think is funny because in this particular picture, it, there's a lot that can be, that can be uh, taken from its meaning. So mm-hmm. what would you, so maybe describe the picture other Jace or Colin. Um, are we describing it objectively or subjectively? Not, not objectively yet, because I, in, in a way, poetry, you take, you take the, the rhythms and the, uh, and the cadences and you try and you just read the words and then you start to find meaning from it. So start with the beginning. What, is, what do you see? Uh, to me, like, well, I see a guy essentially with his knees up and his hands in his, with his head in his, like kind of with his head in his hands, like kind of like in a down position, kind of like he's you know very down on down on himself, down on life. That's kind of what I see from the picture. So let's maybe just point out exactly what you see. So a man, and we know because of anatomically, he does not have breasts. Yeah, not a child. Clearly, not a child. Fully grown man with, and you can see a a fairly muscular abdomen, large legs. You see hair, but you don't see eyes. And you see an ear, so it's a side profile view. Uh, fairly muscular man, and arms down, draped over his knees, and head down well, as well. Well, definitely, I would say he's in the, the fetal position. Um, yeah, so arms wrapped around the knees, uh, head turned down towards the torso, um, and knees buckled in. It's funny because you could see different things. I don't necessarily. Yeah, I, I see like, sitting uh, up. Yeah. So it to me sitting up doesn't denote the fetal position. But that only depends if well, the he, image behind is a wall. He could be. Does the fetal position the need to be on the side though? That's the thing. I, I feel like a fetal position is the same regardless of whether they're up or laying flat. So to me, it looks like when the first time I saw the scene that you see slavery ship because skin tone being a masculature masculine uh, feet body and not being happy kind of being like uh, you feel like you're trapped you, 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 you don't feel you, you, you don't see a way out I, I get that sense of trapped as well where it, it looks very the picture looks very 
He looks like he's hiding. The colors are not. I was going to say, yeah. It's not very saturated. It's very brown and gray. Yeah. Um, And it's very uniform with whatever the background is. It's also the same color as the whoever that is. I would also say he looks almost raceless. There's no. You don't really know what the color of his skin is. Not to say that that would change anything in the picture, but it's it's mostly shading and it's mostly dark colors yeah mixed with some Very some whites and earth maybe tones. Some earth earthy tones yeah. which seems when you use earthy tones it's a very physical oriented piece uh is maybe what i would point out but i i got a very similar sentiment from it too that in, in a way he seems trapped and whether that's being a slaver i kind of thought a so prisoner what's the title of the picture do you know the the title is asking for wisdom which I found kind of interesting too, because I didn't take this as asking for wisdom. Who's the artist? Uh, Ivan Guadarrama. So not I. I honestly just stumbled upon this this painting, and it just spoke to me. So it was one of those things that then I went on the website and and checked out some of his other works, and a lot of his other works did have a a spiritual element or component to them. I thought this one might have been maybe the most honest and grim. A lot of the other ones had crosses or things, so mm-hmm. taking on that spiritual connotation, uh, likely Christian or, or Catholic in, in terms of spiritual viewpoints. But I, I, something about this picture just spoke to me because it's, it's that area that I think is bonding and that we've all talked about a little bit today where it's feeling trapped either within your own life or within circumstance or even physically trapped if it's being a slave on a ship or being a prisoner in a jail cell was kind of what I got from it too. But go ahead. Uh, It's funny because it says asking for wisdom. It's looking kind of down on its own. It's it's looking looking for wisdom from within, within, not from uh, somewhere else. That's what I got from it too. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. For someone who... uh, Cross crosses. Um, this whole discussion actually reminds me of a book I finished reading, and it took me a while to get through it. You've seen me with it a couple of times. Visual intelligence. So Riley, especially if this picture spoke to you, give that book a read because it's all about, and it's not specifically about artwork, but it uses artwork as an example of how we perceive and view the world, essentially. And it'll, it'll give you pictures as examples, and the book will ask you like, "What do you see?" And then did you? See, and then it'll the next chapter will be about that picture and what you saw, and then it'll be related to stories and how we perceive different events. Um, and it goes into things like the some bombings in Asia that happened and how people survived versus how people got killed based on perceptions because there was a, a hostage incident at a mall. Uh, years ago, and I can't remember the details, but um, the people that took people, uh, the the terrorists, I guess, started dressing as police officers to get people out of hiding and said they'd come with them and then they would shoot them on sight. And people that were more percep- perceptive of their surroundings uh, hid in certain areas so they were never found or were able to leave using uh, different methods and not trusting and always asking, like, if an authority came to them, they would ask them for their badge or something. I'm like, oh, are you actually an authority? 
Um, so it's not it's it's about not always believing exactly what you see to entrusting things like instincts, but then always ju- uh, questioning yourself as well. Um, so a very interesting book. I believe the author Amy, I want to say Herman. I may be wrong on the name, but it's called Visual Intelligence. It's a very interesting read, and it's just yeah, just all about perception and how we view the world and looking at it from a different light. And it's looking at what's underneath the surface as well. Yeah, and it, that's, it teaches you to look at things like how would you look at a painting, and that's why I asked, am I looking at this subjectively or objectively? Because like I can bring emotion into it, but then that's subjective, right? You yeah. don't know what the the artist means by it. I mean, the title gives some meaning to it, but looking at it, I see a person who's being held in a certain position. I can't assume any, objectively can't assume any emotion to the picture, right? Yeah. It's it's really tough to take that that subjective side out where you're trying it, to it you're trying to put meaning on. We things are conditioned often. to judge and view things that way, and it goes back into what we were talking at the beginning about judgment on other people. You're taking something subjective and applying it to someone else. Yeah, that was the thought that came into my mind too. Is is I I find it more inter- uh, uh, just inspiring, but also interesting to be looking at people, and I actually. It's you can sense sometimes things happening underneath the surface, and I feel actually more in tune to that. I almost see the artwork of life more so than ever before, where you see people's struggles and you see people, even what they project into the world. And I actually, I feel that I'm at a point where I can read a lot of those just signals and maybe even small things that people project into the world. Yeah. And... Unfortunately, that comes back to being a little bit judgmental as well, and I'll say that I'm I'm guilty of that in certain well, senses. I mean, but we all are, especially in that sense of wanting to help. It's just you see people that are lost in different ways, and you, you really want to help, but you don't have that relationship with them. And there's really only so many interactions you can have. There's only so many, and I've even had this happen before, where if you're constantly pursuing helping people and your cup gets emptied for as a term that i would use Mm -hmm. is you have to make sure that your cup's full so that you can bring it to everyone else i'll I'll even say i i had the most positive bus driver but i knew it wasn't sustainable he was super friendly to everybody in the morning and i still i believe he's a beautiful soul in person and i've even had great interactions with him before but he was so positive to everybody and so friendly and accommodating. But then those negative things happen. And I see it now. He kind of seems at one of those downtimes and he doesn't say hi to everybody. But I, I noticed those things happening. And I saw when he was being super friendly to everybody that it was unsustainable. And it's, it's really sad to a point to just know that you can only do so much mm-hmm. and you only have so much energy and you only have so much positivity. But... It's it's trying to make the best of that however you can. Of course. And being open to that. You don't necessarily know when those opportunities will arise for you to make a difference. But being prepared for those times is maybe one of the most important things that you can do. So let's go into the subjective analysis of this portrait. So uh, We'll start us off on it. Well, it it is... There's something still hopeful about it is what I like about what kind of sure. drew me in because it, it to me being in that pit means that there's a way out. You have to find the weak point and you have to, I would 
in a weird yogic sense, you breathe into the weak spot or you acknowledge even pains that you have. And so in the same way in this photo, it seems that it's just looking for a way out. And there always is a way out. But you maybe just have to raise your eyes. You maybe have to look for it. Whether you're in a prison of your own making or whether you're in a physical prison, prison. and I'm not saying we should have people breaking out of prisons everywhere, but I think that the uh, prison that's a good descriptive word for this picture. So, uh, what, one of the first things I noticed about it was the framing of it. So they're not fully in frame; they're very much in a very crowded. It feels very crowded, right? The the frame is almost pushing in on them, so the outside world's pushing in. So I get the idea of, of an outside pressure, and um, I guess the emotion that comes to my mind looking at this is is sadness or depression with the the very turned in and very um, unsaturated look to it. Um, so I would say it's someone who's definitely feeling pressure from the outside and and turning in on themselves um, due to that pressure. That's how I see it uh, from a subjective standpoint. Other subjective thoughts? No, that's... That's pretty much, I think Jace pretty much nailed it. That's how I, you know, someone who's very, feels like he's trapped, feels like he's. What do you make of it? They seem to be uh, naked in the picture. What do you make of that? Yeah, that's what I thought about being a slave ship. Because they, they used to ta- uh, have, keep them naked. So it yeah. makes uh, running it's also humiliating, so it breaks them down. Humiliating. And it's well, uh, without anything. Yeah, so vulnerable. And yeah. Doesn't that also play into the, the fetal position or very, assume yeah, very, very vulnerable. where you're brought into this world naked and alone? He is alone in this picture as well. Yeah. And so opening yourself up to the world and to experience and to, to life itself as being that freeing thing. And it's. It's funny because this picture could be anyone, but it feels like you. And I don't know if... And perhaps that was the artist's intention. Yeah. Because That's why maybe, the fact that we can't see their face, uh, that they don't have a race, as you said before, or it seems like they, they're not portraying any particular race in general. Good play to that. All that's to say, a beautiful piece of art, and definitely art can inspire us in all different venues and 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 different areas where whether it's music whether it is physical artwork i actually feel that i don't appreciate physical artwork so it was funny that when the thought came into my head to to just go what what artwork and then i i really looked at popular artworks or things that we've seen and none of them spoke to me as much as this picture that all of a sudden came up so art art is pretty yeah it's it's crazy like i um have a after especially reading that visual intelligence book, have a much more appreciation of art in general. And the the book breaks it down essentially into different aspects, but the easiest and simplest way to remember it is when you look at a picture, uh, break it down subjectively and then objectively. What do you see and then what is actually there that you can't say that's subjective, you can't bring things like emotions into it. And then answer the questions of the, the who, the what, the when, uh, the where, and the why, right? So we've answered many of those questions, maybe not the where or when, and then you can look into that, like when was this picture made, right? And then that could, maybe it was made 
during the times of slavery, so maybe it speaks oh, you to don't that know. a little maybe more, right? They depicted something. Of course, yeah, from past or future. Even. But they're all things that play into that, into what goes into that painting, right? Definitely. Um, does anyone have any other topics oh, uh, or things that they'd like to explore? I was going to talk about the security. I don't know if security uh, breach. You can call it Facebook. Facebook? Yeah, I was going to bring that up at the beginning. Yeah. I'm kind of glad that yeah. you brought it up now. So I kind of forgot. Facebook seems to be on the uh, downward slope yeah, as they, of right now. They lost now. $58 billion worth of Elon, Elon Musk has pulled out all his pages off Facebook now in, in light of what happened. So um, I don't know if you know like the details of what happened. Do you, if you want to fill everyone in. Well, there is this... Um, well, my memory fade. Maybe you can bring up the news. I, I mean, there's this. This. Uh, What's Cambridge Analytica? Yeah, is the exactly. Company. So I forgot the name. Yeah. So they, they were using for marketing and stuff for but, political. Yeah, like but then they the kind of misuse the uh, all the information to influence the election. Yeah. So fifty million people have uh, the security um, information. Many companies, including um, Israel, um, Australia, are all. Um, doing an investigation into Facebook because it it may it it's looking like Facebook breached um, the privacy of its users in many countries and it that information was used to help sway of course all of this is um, not proven yet but there's investigations happening that the, all this information was used to sway um, the votes towards Donald Trump in the 2016 election. And so many, yeah, Facebook is in a huge plummet right now. Uh, I imagine Zuckerberg is not feeling too hot right now. Well, the thing is, this kind of uh, has the uh, worst, another another bad uh, face. Because in many countries, like China, or many countries, like say in Iran, they filter Facebook, and they say they, they've gone and stole their information. Mm-hmm. And use your information for their own good. So we, we're, that's why, we're, for your own good, we're filtering these websites. It's kind. This kind of proves them right. Whereas the Facebook was supposed to be a platform for people who don't have voice to make their voice heard, right? Right. But this way, the it kind of helps the narrative of the totalitarian government. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's it's kind of scary, and it's. Um, it may be the end of Facebook as we know it. Well, maybe eight billion in a few days—that's a huge, a huge hit. I mean, the amount of active users they have on it, and, and how much it's dropped off just now, just because of that—that's that's how companies come to an end. That could destroy them. It's, I don't think it will. I think Facebook is big enough, and they have their investment in their hands in other industries that they will survive. But that social media platform, it's definitely not going to be the same as it's been in the past. Shows you how fast companies, big, huge companies can fall overnight. We even had, wasn't it Snapchat, even a couple weeks ago, it was Kylie Jenner said, who uses Snapchat? And all of a sudden they were down, I think, tens of millions of dollars at least in their stock because people went, oh, the Kardashians aren't supporting this anymore. Oh, neither are we. And it shows you these knee-jerk reactions to these. And, and it seems that in terms of, of privacy and, and even our information being online, it's so many different places to begin with. 
if any of those places are hacked. I know it was uh, wasn't PlayStation or what was it? A couple PlayStation's years? been hacked before. PlayStation's oh, they've been all been hacked. At Everything's some point. been hacked. Oh, There's... being hacked is something else. Yeah. But they they're cooperating with this company. Yeah. So, yeah. so this was like a bad freely thing. Gave yeah. This is not hackers thing. going in and forcefully taking the information. Ah. This is them get, willingly giving up information, private information on users in order to sway an election. So in order to sway who the leader of a country is. That's the country like U.S., most powerful country in the world, most powerful military, inf- all the influences on all countries around the world. Yeah. It's a huge thing. Well, yeah. but they even showed that, or, or there's a lot of evidence to say that the liberal nominee being Hillary Clinton was also um, raped, that she was, she got that because she had that the Clintons have their hands in the right pockets. Yeah, that. exactly. I, well, I believe that one, one reason that Trump was elected was that Hillary was the uh, candidate for the Democratic Party. I don't think Bernie Sanders would have won against him either. But, well, he but, came in but too but he late was a better in the game, person. right? He, he was not as... Uh, if he, he, yeah, he came in too late in the game. I think he, he would have stood a chance if he tried the way he did mid-campaign. Uh, at the beginning of the campaign and made himself known because people didn't know who Bernie Sanders, a lot of people didn't know, especially in our generation, who Bernie Sanders was until um, Hillary became the big picture. And it's funny because Bernie Sanders became the voice of the young people throughout yeah. his platform as well. Yeah. And he was the... He was, he was smart about he, it. He's Jewish, and he was the, but he was the only one that was invited to Vatican. Yeah. That's, yeah. So that's, that's, that tells you a lot. And the, another thing is Hillary had run against Obama in the Second run. That's right. That was a bad. Another. That was another bad move. Well, she so, dropped out, right? Yeah. So and then Obama was saying that time Obama was accusing him of many different things, but then he coming. Oh, if Obama, if uh, he he's she's the better person to be a president than me and the and the Clinton Bill Clinton. Yeah. No one would believe that. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's a crazy world. It the is. Political crazy. landscape is changing now, and you know what? Maybe it's a good thing. Uh, to introduce, I mean, and it's happening in a bad way, and it's very chaotic in the political world. But it may introduce good change in the future. So we can only hope that the system starts to clean up in a sense, because it does seem that your well, power, your your accessibility to powerful people. And so there's been this corruption going on for a long time. It's just that now that Trump has come to office, a lot of things have come to light about how corrupted political parties can be in certain. Uh, massive figureheads and what they're willing to do in order to to win and make more money right here's the random fact of the day since you mentioned the vatican there was a pope and he was pope in 1492 when columbus sailed over and discovered the americas and you could also argue that after the vikings had already discovered the americas and after the the uh, first nations or Aboriginals that already landed here. So there were peoples that knew the Americas before Christopher Columbus. But anyways, back to the... So Pope Alexander Borgia uh, was a corrupt pope. So in the, in the holiest of sanctities was corrupt and essentially bought his... So you become a cardinal, but ended up but buying enough votes and getting into uh, was the pope uh, and had... A mistress while he was pope, and even has been uh, has been accused of having orgies in the Vatican as well. So, <laughs> when Makes we sense. look at leaders, when we look at leaders and powerful people, it's it's interesting. You think of absolute power corrupts absolutely, 
And so even rising to get to those points, who were the people that were cardinals? Well, it's rich, powerful people. Yep. And you look at Rome, who were the people in the Senate? Well, they were rich, powerful people. So it just seems natural that they then try and pass it along to their family or their lineage because who can they trust when they're in power and who's not necessarily trying to take their heads? There are a lot of examples where a brother will take out another brother. You even look at North Korea now, <laughs> whereas you know that will happen. It's to kind of solidify their reign as absolute ruler. But in terms of American politics, it's, you know, it's how do I rise up and how do I get there? And it seems that there's all these backhanded deals. And how do we clean this up seems to be a very, it's an intricate question. I I don't know. I couldn't even hypothesize on what the answer is because, but when there's billions of people in the world, we think of Canada has 32 million last time I checked. I don't know. Somewhere around there. Yeah. But 32 million is a lot of individual people to have a, a leadership over. And, you know, we do okay. <laughs> I don't know I if mean, we're... Still nothing compared to the 300 million in the United States. And then billion in China. And India, yeah. And, and India. So, yeah, what the answers are, I don't know. No. Um, we should start wrapping this up. Definitely. We are past the two-hour mark as of now. Hey, perfect. <laughs> Let's. Does anyone have a, a positive note we can lead people on? Uh, I'll have some closing thoughts following that, but something uplifting to leave the listeners with. Sure. One day we're all going to be gone, so live your life today. <laughs> that's, that's both sides of it. That's Jace's grim outlook on the future. <laughs> not grim. It's not grim. I swear. Got to look at it differently. How about live life to the fullest while you're here? There you go. Act there. now. Act now. I like that. Okay. Some closing thoughts. Uh, as always, check out the meetup.com website if you're interested in the discussion group. Uh, we also have the social media pages up and running and hopefully some content coming your way. Uh, so Facebook and Instagram, we have... For now. Although, yeah, Be I don't know how long that's going to launch. Facebook. But yeah, Facebook, <laughs> facebook.com slash Be The Change YPS. Uh, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, volunteering, so the Andrew Dunn Walk. If you're interested, definitely... Uh, send an email or even just message uh, either of the social media pages and we'll get back to you as timely as possible. And uh, yeah, uh, one of the big things I'd like to announce is we will be having guests in the near future. So two weeks from now, we will in all likelihood and all hopefulness have our first guests on the podcast. So we're really excited to share new people's opinions and, and their experiences as young professionals and people who want to make positive change in the world as well. Any uh, any other thoughts? All right. Bye, everyone. Take care. All right. Bye. Until next time.